Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to askbillnye.com. You can also check me out on all the social media to find out about our upcoming guests. Today, I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and dear friend, seriously, Corey S. Powell, Hello, Corey. Bill, greetings, salutations. Uh, now, as you know, I'm pretty blasé about celebrities. I, yes. I'm on this show yes. with you all the time, and honestly, I barely even notice it. I like there's not even a palpitation going on. Uh, not even a palpitation. Not people. even a palpitation. Um, but I have to admit, I'm a little bit starstruck by our guests today because we have not only a noted volcanologist, but also the legendary filmmaker who created. Fitzcarraldo and Nosferatu, someone who has a unique personal perspective on science, and somebody who I personally am just very excited to have on the show and to hear how he shares that perspective with us. Yes, 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 my friends. Our guests today, there are two of them, are Dr. Clive Oppenheimer and Werner freaking Herzog, people. Dr. Oppenheimer is a volcanologist at the University of Cambridge in the UK, Mr. Herzog is a renowned director of many films, not just the ones you mentioned, but some of my favorite documentaries, including Grizzly Man, Encounters at the End of the World, and Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Werner Herzog and Dr. Clive Oppenhanger, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Werner, and may I call you Clive? Of course. Go ahead. (laughs) All right, so today we are talking about your new movie. It's called Fireball. Visitors from Darker Worlds. So, is this about aliens? Well, it is not really, but because nothing is alien out there in the universe. Even life is not alien, in my opinion, because we share the same history with the entire universe, the same chemistry, the same uh, physics. So it's highly probable that there's life out there, but probably it's going to be very disappointing, as uninteresting as the snot 
of the running nose of a toddler. This movie is about cosmic dust, asteroids, impacts, meteorites, fireball visitors from darker worlds. Uh, why did you want to make this movie about asteroids, cosmic dust? What got you going on this? So Vern and I had made a film on volcanoes four years ago, Into the Inferno. And uh, that, that is the topic very close to my heart, eruptions of the past and uh, present day eruptions and their impacts on, on society, how to monitor them. Um, and about a year or so after that film came out, I was casting around for, for ideas of what would be a good topic for another film. And while on a visit to South Korea, I visited the Korean Polar Research Institute. And most meteorites found by scientists are found in Antarctica. They have a research vessel that goes down there. They have uh, at least a couple of bases. They have an Arctic operation as well. Uh, so they've found about a thousand meteorites down in Antarctica. And I, while, while talking to the meteoriticist and looking at these wonderful stones curated in, in an ultra clean lab, each one of them in a cubicle with a nitrogen atmosphere to preserve them, uh, I was struck by just the, the visual aesthetics of this, but also it struck me that uh, this was another very, very rich topic uh, that Vern and I might tackle because it's not just this geoscience. It's also the significance that these stones that have fallen from the heavens have had for human cultures throughout time and around the world. So I got back from that visit and uh, in a couple of weeks put a draft outline together of of how we might treat the, the topic. And I gave Werner a call. And then Werner, you saw this and what was your reaction? What made you think this is a topic that spoke to you that you wanted to interact with. Well, it's not just a topic that uh, Clive tossed at me. He had done research and had documented uh, over 30 impact sites, uh, including also uh, places where the significance, the cult cultural significance is enormous, like the Black Stone in the Great Mosque in, in Mecca which is venerated in the Islamic world. He pinpointed uh, a place, uh, for example, uh, Torres Strait Islands, in one island, Mare Island, between Northern Australia and Papua New Guinea, where the tribal people believe that the souls of the departed ride on meteorites, ride on shooting stars into the netherworld. And so it, it was... Uh, such a fascinating arrangement of uh, locations, cultural impacts, uh, and also cast of characters. So all that was sent to me by, by Clive and didn't take more than five seconds flat. And it was clear I would be on board. And I knew we would have a very fine collaboration because we bring some uh, well-compatible sets of skills into a movie. Right. What is that relationship like between the two of you? How do you collaborate? You, you have the best collaborations among brothers, the Cohen brothers, the Taviani brothers in Italy, and, and they are great, but they are siblings. We are not siblings, but uh, we have uh, settled things, disputes always in the sense of friendship and respect. And we did not want to have it uh, pinned down in legal terms 
the attorneys immediately came and they said, ah, we have to define your legal responsibilities and uh, and Clive's responsibilities and who would overrule whom in which case. And so I said, no, stay away, stay back. We shall sort it out and we shall sort it out in the right spirit, almost like siblings. So you just mentioned something that, that caught my ear just now. You were talking about the island between Australia and Papua New Guinea, where the sp- spirits of the dead are believed to ride on shooting stars. Into the living world, yeah. You also mentioned meteorites. And just say, te- for the listeners, technically, a meteor is the streak in the sky. A meteorite is when the rock makes it all the way to the Earth's surface. Did these ancient peoples understand the connection between streaks in the sky, shooting stars, rocks burning up, entering the atmosphere, and rocks that made it to the ground. That's an enormous insight. That's a huge conceptual leap. I don't think uh, they have this kind of distinction, but Clive would know it much better. Yeah, I I would say until the 18th century, it it was widely understood that objects could fall from the sky, from the heavens. And these, these objects were venerated, like the black stone that was said to have been brought by the angel Gabriel from heaven, given to Abraham to set in the wall of the, the first Kaaba. But in the 18th century, it was the Western scientists of the day who, who actually uh, couldn't believe that anything could be suspended in space other than the, the, the heavenly bodies. And they, they completely dismissed the idea of, of cosmic stones. Even with the discoveries of Isaac Newton and his understanding of the motion of the moon. Yeah, this, these reports were the superstitions of peasants, along with their accounts of, of uh, rains of blood and frogs and, and so on. And so they were completely dismissed. It was only at the very end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, when it, more of these stones were found. And it was seen that a stone in, in India was very similar to a stone found in America, that it, it became untenable, this idea that the that meteorites were formed by lightning in the atmosphere or were volcanic stones that had been carried by storms. They had to be extraterrestrial. But the scientists or philosophers in antiquity, Greek and Roman antiquity, got the story right. No, it's, it's striking that they got the story right back then, whereas, I mean, there's a famous quote that circulates that, you know, Thomas Jefferson was very skeptical about the reality of stones falling from heaven. You know, somehow that, that ancient sense of plausibility got lost along the way. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting how it's one of those instances where science really took a, took a wrong turn for a while, but it righted itself. I mean, that's, that's the important thing. So it sounds, just talking about Thomas Jefferson and his skepticism about rocks falling from the sky. The people who worship the stone in Mecca, watching the movie, I kind of sense that the mystery that you're driving at. Sure, there is a mystery about uh, the black rock number one. We do not know for certain whether it's really a, a meteorite. We are not allowed to, to scrutinize it in a scientific lab. That's obvious. And the stone was venerated probably a thousand, a whole millennium before the arrival of Islam, before the Prophet Muhammad uh, started Islam. But it did not influence the doctrine of Islam at all. But the veneration for the stone at this very place, Mecca, was alive and and, uh, 
caught the imagination and the veneration of the local people. So, but I, I think that Islam tries, and even in Mecca itself, we have seen footage where uh, guardians, custodians of the faith try to divert the pilgrims a little bit away from the sacred stone, from the black stone, because it is not part of the teachings of Islam. No, the, the veneration of the stone goes a long, long way back. It, it, it's had a very checkered history. It was even stolen at one point. And, uh, How much does it weigh if I were going to steal it? Hypothetically speaking. It's set in um, something that almost looks like a, the front end of a washing machine, um, set in some in resins, and it's anointed every day with various oils and, and incense. Um, and there are several pieces of it. Sterling silver encasing. What's really striking in the movie is the way that People have ascribed different meanings to meteorites in different places and different times. I'm curious, the full name of your movie is Fireball, Visitors from Darker Worlds. What do you mean by darker worlds? What does that mean to you? Well, for me, it means that there isn't that much light out there. We are <laughs> accustomed to a lot of light because we are close in close proximity to the sun. But apparently there is something very dark, very unknown, very mysterious out there, and we have to live with it. And we'll never sol- solve it. And we'll never solve, let's say, uh, making contact to extraterrestrials if they're out there, because we may send out a message and 250,000 years later, an answer would come back. We don't have that time and it's going to stay a mystery. But while we're recording this, the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft is on its way back to Earth with a piece of the asteroid Bennu. And there's a Japanese mission, uh, Hayabusa 2, that's bringing back a piece of another asteroid called Ryugu. Two different missions in which we're no longer waiting for the rocks to come to us. We are going to the rocks. It's sort of a... Does that cast light on the darker world? It sort of flips the whole idea of the visitor kind of on its head. I think think it's wonderful for meteoriticists because uh, they've they've envied terrestrial geologists. I, I... can go out to a volcano with my hammer and I can take a rock. I know exactly where it's come from. But they've had to work with stones broadly of an unknown provenance. So you get to walk around all the time uh, getting all that uh, meteoriticist envy cast your way? <laughs> we, we, we ensure that our conferences don't clash so we don't, we don't meet each other. But uh, <laughs> no, I mean, the, the Hayabusa 2 mission is, is very exciting. and that, That's due back next month. And it may have scooped up a, a gram of uh, Ryugu, and Ryugu is is one of the these organic rich bodies, asteroidal bodies. So it, it may well have uh, some of these extraordinary organic molecules in it. But I very ex- astonishing missions. Amino acids that apparently can form just in deep space. Apparently, they found sugar on meteorites. So, do you think then? let's say, in my or your lifetime, do you think we'll find a way to get life started? Rep- molecules that replicate themselves. I think that's a very challenging task and on that kind of a time scale. I, I think, you know, that life, I don't think life is everywhere, but I think the ingredients, uh, if we look at these organic molecules, which are formed abiotically, but to, I mean, as a geologist, it, to me, it, it's astonishing. I'm, I'm used to inorganic minerals in the volcanic rocks I, I look at, to have molecules with 100 carbon atoms in them. Uh, even a protein has now been found carried by a meteorite. I mean, it's very, very mind-boggling. But 
but that's not life. You know, where where does that matter have to get to? What what's the environment it needs then for for uh, life to be possible? And and that's a very self replicate, right? Yes, and I think you know this is still uh, you know there, there are uh, some who consider life as just another another uh, phase, another state of matter. Uh, but I think there's a lot more to it than that. I think it's and, and of course uh, the universe is extremely hostile against life, much of it, most of it, and and there might be there are lots of tiny, tiny, tiny uh, specks out there where life is possible. And uh, of course we have discovered uh, places that seem to be more friendly towards. Uh, life, uh, the exoplanets, and there's a huge hype about all this because it doesn't help us to know, ah, yeah, there's 25,000 light years away, some sort of a constellation which might be uh, favorable for origins of life. Uh, We'll never know because it's too far away. We can never send a probe that far um, and wait for its return. So let's forget about it. But we know such an overabundance of uh, stars and planets and galaxies out there, trillions and trillions. And there are separate tiny islands where life is possible. And it wouldn't be surprising to find it there one day or find it coming in on a meteorite, just embedded in a meteorite. But it's all not that exciting. We we know that the possibility is, is uh, fairly high that there's life out there. But very uninteresting kinds of life, in my opinion. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, it would be too I, much I, for I, me. I, so any I, kind of life would be interesting to me. Oh, my but, goodness. So I say there's two questions everybody asks. Everybody, from the time you're a little kid till your last breath. Where did we all come from? And then are we alone? Those are the two questions. And so for me, this, this, your new movie has those themes going all the way through it. This darkness, these visitors, people revered them, studied them very closely and trying to find out what the solar system was like when it got started. I just tried to caution against the figments of fantasy in the movies we won't find uh, what we see in Star Wars. I wish we would run into the little green men or into the... Uh, Wait, you're telling me that The Mandalorian is not a documentary? It's not a realistic expectation? <laughs> you know, my, my favorite one is is The Blob, especially because, you know, it's it's got that nice cinematic link when it turns up in the projection booth when all the kids are watching their, their late night movie. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it's going to be like. So... Something that's made me wild since I was first was given the information to ponder is you and I are made of the same material as these rocks, these visitors from the darkness. Bill, we're all stardust. We're all stardust. And so we are at least one way that the cosmos knows itself. And I find that so compelling. Repeat that. Repeat that, that the cosmos knows itself. I may be bungling it slightly, but the Carl Sagan quote is that we are made of the stuff of stars and humans are a way of the universe knowing itself. I want to have one clarification from you. Do you try to sell the idea to me that the cosmos is conscious of itself? Absolutely not. The cosmos is not an entity. Yeah, we, we, are, not, we are not panpsychists here. Well, here's, I believe, the claim 
because these materials are so common, carbon, for example, and water seems to be extraordinarily common, and then these amino acids, that living things would then emerge. Therefore, it is reasonable that life is likely. Therefore, it is reasonable that an entity would emerge that would wonder what the heck is going on in the cosmos, and that entity, to wit humans, would be made of these same materials. And it's a romantic, Carl Sagan would use the expression star stuff, but it's uh, more romantic to me to refer to stardust. Why is it so crazy to suggest that we are made of this material and therefore we are one way I'm that the universe has thought materials. about it. No, that's fine to speculate and to, to deduct we are made of the same materials. I'm speaking about the consciousness, the universe being conscious of itself. And you are moving into, into this scientific, pseudo-scientific babble of new age let me say that's not what I'm claiming. Okay. That's absolutely not what Looking I'm claiming. Looking at your face, which uh, people cannot see because it's only audio for them. I look at your face and I have confidence. <laughs> Stick around for more science rules after this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Science Rules is back. Let me ask you this about a guy in the movie, uh, John Larson, the dust guy. Is he, is he crazy or is he on to something? No, they said he was crazy. The places that we scientists go to find meteorites are the deserts. They go to Antarctica. They don't expect them to find them in, in the gutter at home. Uh, they don't expect to find them in a car park at a, a shopping mall. And so that's what he set out to do. And he, his first five years, and, and bear in mind, this guy is a, is a jazz musician. It's, this is not his, this is his hobby. And he's going, you know, looking at Google Earth, finding where there are flat roofs where these particles might have aggregated. And he spent the first five years just trying to discriminate and classify everything else he found, all the, the muck of urban environments, bird droppings, the, everything that's up, up in the gutters. Uh, but he actually found these things. He found bona fide extraterrestrial particles, and he's found thousands of them. Now, I have to jump in here because when I got to that part of the movie, I was like, I thought, this is really exciting. This is, reminds me of a, of a book that I saw recently that I just thought was so cool. And then I look at the book and like, oh, it's the book on the Trail of Stardust by John Larson. <laughs> it's the same thing. 
the beauty of it, of these microscopic particles. They're, they're the most beautiful sculptures you've ever seen in your life. There's a comment that you make in the movie, and it clearly caught people's attention because I think that it's featured in the press kit. You know, it's, it's a very striking moment when you say, I think I'm not stardust, I'm Bavarian. I'd love to hear you just sort of elaborate on, like, what were you thinking? What did you, what did you mean by that comment? How shall I put it? I somehow expected the conversation would turn towards that. And I pondered about some sort of answer. And in the film, you see, I'm behind the camera all the time, and you see my hand getting into frame, and softly I push Clive aside, and you hear my voice, and they say, no, I'm not stardust, I'm Bavarian. And everybody roars in laughter. Right. Particularly when, when you have more than five people sitting together and watching it. Because I, I said to Clive, we must not be didactic. That's why I hated school. That's why I, I wanted <laughs> to break away from school and, uh, and explore the world on my own. And, and I said, we, there has to be humor in it. There has to be storytelling in it. There has to be wild fantasy in it. There has to be some contradictions in it. And uh, all that uh, was immediately clear between Clive and me. As you were traveling around, you're visiting all these different meteorites, and they're meteorites that have different meanings in different contexts. You viewed some of them in a cultural context, some of them in much more of a straight, I'd call a classical, modern context. Did you have a favorite? Did you, did you feel an emotional attachment, or did you feel like you developed a relationship with some of these different meteorites? Oh, well, I, I developed a relationship with uh, ET19007, uh, which was the the chunk of Uralite that I found on the polar plateau with the Koreans. It's just such a, a thrill to actually find a meteorite uh, for the first time in my life. 95% of the stones that you find out in Antarctica are, are ordinary chondrites. I mean, they're by no means ordinary, but they're quite widespread. And, and Hold on, let's back up for a second. What is, what is a chondrite? And what, what, what makes something ordinary and something extraordinary in that context? Yeah, the, the chondrites have chondrules in them. And, and we have, have some beautiful photomicrographs showing chondrules in, in the movie. Hold, hold, hold on, I think, I think we need to take this down one more level. What is a chondrule? Just to sort of help people who are... Yeah, so I mean, their formation is still not, not well understood. That, and that's a fundamental question because they're one of the most abundant things found in meteorites. And their agglomerations, they're very small spherical agglomerations of, of the first dust of before the planets have formed. This is the stuff that was out, out in space around the sun uh, very, very early in the history of the solar system. And it, it somehow coalesce to form these small particles that then have clumped together in, into larger chunks. So they're not ordinary, but they're called ordinary chondrites. And why do they still have to go back to Antarctica to find more of these things? They've found thousands and thousands of meteorites, but they're looking for something they haven't, they've never found before, something exotic. They're looking for, uh, imagine if they found a sedimentary rock from Mars. Nothing like that has ever been found. Only about 100 Martian meteorites have ever been found on Earth. And so they're after these, these more unusual, more exotic meteorites, some of the ones that are full of organic molecules like Aguasarcus, the, the doghouse meteorite, which we, we also encountered in, uh, in a vault in Arizona, ASU, chock full of organic molecules. And, and Clive, I remember you, you uh, took a whiff of it. You <laughs> could take the scent and you could smell the scent of something that is four 
4,500 million years old. And it, it had a scent a little bit of mothballs, you described yes, it Yes, like something that. like mothballs or the, the contents of a, a vacuum cleaner bag. I mean, something, you know, quite very, very unusual, very distinctive, very, a very pungent smell. And yes, you know, just to think these odor molecules are from uh, four and a half billion years ago. Werner, did you develop something you would call an emotional or an empathic attachment to any of your subjects? Uh, yes. Uh, strangely enough, uh, Paul Steinhardt, the uh, cosmologist at Princeton University, he was after quasi-crystals. And the concept of quasi-crystals is really a uh, phenomenal idea. Mathematically, it was proven by, I think, uh, Penrose. And the question was, do quasi-crystals exist in nature? And by coincidence, a tiny fragment embedded in a small, small, small uh, meteorite that was found in eastern Russia, close to the Bering Strait, contained elements of uh, quasi-crystal. And uh, I find it fascinating that there's a structure there, a crystalline structure that is has been unthinkable, has been impossible. And we are trying to dig a little bit into it to, to give a gist of five-fold symmetries that are impossible in uh, the structures of, of regular crystals. And I find it absolutely fascinating. And of course, a scientist who has no experience of wilderness out there uh, goes on an expedition <laughs> into the taiga of eastern Russia and uh, there are wild bears around and uh, clouds of mosquitoes and his experience with wild nature has been not further than the lawns of Princeton University. I love the charm of this man, the shyness and charm and depth of the man and the depth of the question in the depth of the mystery that has been solved. And of course, also has been solved by artisans more than 500 years ago in Iran, uh, in a shrine in Isfahan. You have uh, a, a mosaic which solves uh, the uh, quasi-crystalline structure. Also, another thing that you have a connection with, you remember in Wolf Creek, in Western Australia, the Candy Malal, the impact crater there, and we we met members of the Aboriginal community living very close to the crater, a number of whom are artists, and uh, their paintings depict the the ancestral and sacred meanings of the landscape, and include the the crater features in many of these. One of her very beautiful paintings that that we see in the film. Uh, is is now hanging on your wall, I believe. Yes, I bought it. <laughs> I was so impressed. I have never had any images, pictures on my walls. I have maps on my walls, or sometimes some photos, but I don't have art on my on my walls. And for the first time ever in my life, I bought a painting. Now, why did you find the quasi crystals so fascinating? I know. Uh, Paul Steinhardt's book has this kind of magical title, The Second Kind of Impossible, and you bring that into the movie. Why is that so compelling to you? Because it's so unthinkable. If you look at it when, when you do tilings with uh, triangles, uh, equal side triangles or, or squares, or like, let's say 
hexagons, they all fit seamlessly. And all of a sudden having pentagons and you try to put them seamlessly together and uh, make tilings on your bathroom floor, it's impossible. And it's unthinkable. And, and something that uh, leads us into believing things and uh, into dismissing it as impossible. And for centuries, it was declared impossible. And mathematically, all of a sudden, an ingenious uh, mathematician, Penrose, solves it. Clive, you came to this from volcanoes. Is there some connection for you between the minerals you find in volcanoes, volcanic craters, uh, meteorite impact craters, and the crystals you find in meteorites? Is there some thread there? Yeah, no, there there is a thread. Uh, uh, quite a lot of meteorites are are the these achondrite meteorites are broadly igneous. They're fairly f- familiar looking under the microscope to a volcanologist or a, uh, an igneous petrologist, someone who studies uh, igneous rocks from Earth. But but for me, coming to this topic as a volcanologist was more about the cultural side of things. With with Into the Inferno, our film on volcanoes, we're we're again looking at uh, at belief systems. We're looking at at cultures, communities that live on the sides of active volcanoes. That, uh, of course, if you lived on the side of a volcano and it glows at night, you would. It'd be bizarre if you didn't have a way of explaining these extraordinary phenomena. So it's it's this side that interests me, and it's the same thing with with shooting stars and meteorites and impact craters. It's it's the meaning that that humans imbue in these in these phenomena. If you think about volcanoes, uh, if you're trying to monitor volcanoes and forecast their activity for the sake of protecting populations that are threatened, uh, the science only gets you so far. You've still got to understand how to communicate risk, how, how to deal with the huge uncertainty that you have in the science and still make decisions. So there's always a human dimension to these kinds of topics. You're absolutely right to get people to understand what science has shown about these objects from space is maybe more than half the battle. I mean, we made reference to Thomas Jefferson early on uh, about his skepticism that rocks could fall from space. Fundamentally, you guys, why do you make these films? Why do you make these science films? What grabs you about this? Oh, there's a very simple answer, and it's good that you bring it back to movies. Um, when we did the uh, film on volcanoes together and now on meteorites, there was always one thing clear. Movie making and science have one thing or many things in common, a sense of curiosity, a sense of awe. If a movie doesn't have this sense of awe and cannot transport it into an audience, uh, you shouldn't make movies. And in this Respect, Clive and I are kindred spirits. And that's how we connect it. And that's how we connect to a man like the Jesuit brother in the Vatican, or at Castel Gandolfo, at the lab for meteorites, or the collection of meteorites. This incredible sense of awe and excitement about it. And we kept saying if one or two kids, after having seen the film decides, oh, I want to be a scientist, then we have won the battle. In that spirit, 
is there a, a particular moment of awe from making the movie that is on your mind right now? A moment, a moment that really stuck with you? The beauty of things like the micrometeorites, just specks of dust, and you uh, enlarge it uh, 3,000 times, and all of a sudden you have the most incredible sculptures, three-dimensional sculptures there that should be exhibited in uh, big art museums and discovered by a man who is a musician uh, in his daytime job. So I think the film is... is has this permanent sense of awe. That's what, what movie making is all about. And I think it's what's, what science is all about. Science Rules will be right back. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You're listening to Science Rules. Corey. Corey. Bill, I, I hear something. It is time for the lightning round. It was our customary way of closing out an episode, asking lightning fast questions, hoping to elicit lightning fast answers. To, to Werner and I, do we need our fingers on the buzzers for this? Yeah, we normally do it only with one guest, so we'll, uh, we'll have to see how this works. Clive, if you could study anything other than what you're studying now, what would it be? Archaeology or ice cores. I've answered mathematics, but I mean pure number theories. That that itches me. That explains part of your fascination with uh, with quasi crystals. Do meteorites make you feel lonely, or do they make you feel more connected to the universe? More connected. Yeah, I've got I've got one in my hand right now. It's. Uh... Makes me feel very connected, and <laughs> look, Werner's got his as well. Mine comes from Chelyabinsk, from the the fireball in 2013. Yes, my, my father-in-law, who uh, is a great geophysicist in Siberia, he got several parts for uh, fragments to analyze, and he gave me one as a present. Wait, and Clive, what was you, what was the bit that you were holding? Uh, so mine's an. An iron meteorite, uh, also, also from Siberia, from uh, Sukhot Alin, from fell in 1947, and it's it's uh, beautifully sculpted from falling through the atmosphere. You can you can see where it it was burning up, and it's got these grooves on it. Very tactile. Yeah, it looks like a dagger. Wow. So, you guys, what what's next for you? Do you have another joint project coming up? Uh, well, not right now. What's what's on my plate is uh, asynchronous teaching at the university, which is a, a a profound joy to lecture to my laptop for uh, pre-records that that then go out to the students. I'm I'm always hatching the next thing, so Werner will get another call from me. <laughs> We're looking forward, Werner. Do you have another project you want to do? Well, Clive has to articulate it uh, because it should be something connected to science. And he's a scientist, I'm just a filmmaker. But at the moment, I'm writing poetry and I'm writing prose texts. I actually want to move out, out, of, out of science a bit. 
with with not, wow. not entirely, but I'd, I'd like to make uh, films on other aspects of culture and history and, and human behavior. Are you all concerned the way I believe Corey and I are about this anti-science movement that's around where people think, seem to believe their own opinion about whatever it might be is the same as an expert's opinion? I think being worried about it, it's, it's just, it's the result of propaganda. There's nothing more you can say about it. So if you can fight the propaganda, then great. Uh, but it's, it's pretty soul destroying. Here's what I'm saying. If you're thinking about uh, doing something about emotion and culture, moving away from science, I'm pleading with you to do something to address the anti-science that is all over the place. When we, are, we are doing films and we show the beauty and the joy of science and the joy of filmmaking. And of course, it's, it's deeply, deeply disquieting, but it's, uh, it's a more complex uh, cultural thing. It's not only anti-scientist, uh, anti-science uh, sort of sentiment. Uh, it's much deeper than that and much more complex than that. But you just touched on it, what I like to call the joy of discovery, the J-O-D. Sure, there's no deeper joy than that. And so when uh, somebody goes to Mars, inscribed on three of the photometric calibration targets, the test patterns for the camera, it says, to those who visit here, we wish the joy of discovery. A safe journey and the joy of discovery. Let me put it this way. It may be even an unsafe journey. And it may be even a journey with a one-way ticket. It may be a journey with no return. And still, we are. I would be on it any time if there are great discoveries out there and the great joy of it. You would take a one-way trip to Mars for the adventure of it? No, not the adventure. For the experience of it. Yes, if I could only send a movie back from from Mars, fine. And I'm old enough to end my days up there, somewhere out there. So keep that in mind if you're out there, Elon. Yes, but but they are promoting an obscene idea. We should not graze like locusts our planet empty and then move on to the next. It is an obscene idea. Yes, go to Mars for exploration. Go there for enlightening us go there for for new insight in our solar system that's all wonderful and fine do that but don't think about sending a million or so colonists to mars which is impossible anyway it's absolutely impossible i tell those people those people that and the word the colonist time. itself is is a very there's nothing word. to breathe, everybody. Not just nothing to eat or drink. There's nothing to breathe. You will notice that immediately. And the uh, radiation might try you like <laughs> It's just extraordinary. I'm glad that you're sharing uh, disgust with the idea of colonizing. Colonization means something, and it carries a lot of history with it. And the idea that you would want to take that history with you to another planet is... It's not where, where I want the future of humanity to be. I have only one word for it, and I said it, obscenity. It's obscene. You know, what happened, I think, I've said this many times, people came from Europe to the Americas and just started going east to west, shooting everything, eating everything, digging everything up. You can't do that on Mars. It's not an analog. It's just not going to happen. Wow, this has just been great, you guys. Thank you. Our guests today have been volcanologist Dr. Clive Oppenheimer and director 
Werner Herzog. Their documentary is called Fireball, Visitors from Darker Worlds, and is available on Apple TV Plus starting November 13th. Remember, when it comes to understanding those mysterious balls of fire that rain from the sky from time to time, science Science rules. rules. If you like Science Rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. Be sure to look at my socials for more information on our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785 or submit a question to your homepage, askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and the very same Corey S. Powell. Hey, happy to help. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. And at Stitcher, everyone, Science Science Rules. Rules. Stitcher. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.